0: James. Very good. How are you today? I'm well, thank you. I'm excited to get into today's topic.
1: Let's do it. What is the topic that you've picked?
0: All right. So this week I've chosen actually a paper that was released by the World Bank uh, a little while ago in uh, a partnership with UNICEF. And the title of this paper is The First Seven Years are Key to a Successful Life. So, uh, Duncan, before you and I get into the deep end on this, I thought I would just share a couple of excerpts from the paper itself to give some context. Do it. So, sci- that's it. scientific evidence suggests that the first 1,000 days are the most important in a child's life. Providing quality services and reaching out to parents with tailored support during this critical period pays off with increased cognitive skills, significantly improved education outcomes, and better start to life. One of the UNICEF representatives goes on to say, the first years are the most important in life of every child as they set the basis for overall success in life. They're also very important for every society as this is the best chance to influence future prosperity, inclusiveness, and social stability. Early childhood development is considered to be the most powerful tool to address inequities, a chance to provide opportunity to our children to develop to their full potential. Every child is needed and every child has a route to a good start. Okay. So I guess for me, where I want to start this off is this has actually been a very personal journey for myself. So for any of uh, our listeners who are just joining us for the first time, I uh, like to talk often and at great length about my two young children that are now three years and five months old. And... The reason why this is personal is because from when my first child was born, I suddenly came to the realization that I had absolutely, like, um, like uh, I guess many parents, that I had no idea what I was doing. Uh, and that was in relation to how I wanted to ensure that my child, now children, get the best start in life or can develop at an optimal level. And it really, uh, going back, was I didn't have a plan. And it was struck upon me that it was important to understand how the brain worked. And so what I was lucky enough to come in contact with was a neonatalist in Sydney
1: called Dr. Howard Chilton,
0: who explained to and me Jeff, how... James, what's a
1: neonatalist?
0: Okay, so a neonatalist is like a, um, someone who studies the brain. And so, to be fair, he was an he is a neonatalist and a pediatrician, and a pediatrician is a child doctor. So, um, so Dr. Howard Jordan, um, who has also written books on this, explained to me that when you are first born, you're born uh, underdeveloped. So, um, Duncan, I think you and I have spoken about this before, but basically, we are as human beings born premature. And when we're born, we don't have a fully developed neocortex, which is where your uh basically lives. And so this started for me a journey of discovering how uh, the brain functions and how it's important to be aware of these different evolutions for me to understand the best way that I can help
1: my children develop. Does that make sense? It does. Uh, I thought I'd just add one thing here. Um human babies are kind of born at the last moment they can fit out of a female. And yeah. <laughs> even then, it's, it's not necessarily the world's, uh, you know, most, I don't know, smooth, you know, outcome. And so, human babies typically can't even see when they're born. But if you're another mammal like an elephant, they've got to get up and walk immediately. And so, one of the things that's happened from an evolutionary perspective is that humans from walking upright, our hips have gotten thinner and thinner, which means that the actual, you know, time... Between the last moment that you know a, a woman can give birth, you know, is actually getting sooner. Um, but one of and the our dividends heads have gotten bigger and bigger. Yeah, one of the dividends, or the reason our head's gotten bigger is dividends of being born early, is that there's a lot more stimulus or stimulating of a human baby that goes on than if you're in a womb. So I saw this written somewhere that if, in the equivalent for like an elephant, they're born at somewhere like two and a half to three years old for a human. And if a human was born at those levels, it could probably get up and walk. You know, most two to three-year-old humans can walk. But that pre period up to that point, a, a, you know, an elephant is sitting in the womb, not having any real interaction with what's going on around. But a human's out and about. Um, and this means that this was the most important time, which sort of James was talking about. This is when their brain is most plastic. Um, so then this stimulus of being out, you know, looking at the world, engaging, actually meant that we developed cognitively more. So, the dividend of being born early and having relatively, you know, babies that are very dependent upon their parents is that, that we became smarter.
0: Exactly. So, um, so, to that point, when we are uh, – so, uh, in evolutionary terms, that's exactly um, – well, to my understanding as well, don't think that we're born to mature basically because we've got smaller hips and we had bigger heads.
1: But the heads so, got bigger as this weird sort of thing. Because we were born earlier, is- our brain got stimulated more, and then the heads got bigger, and then yep. we got born earlier and earlier. Yep. So the evolutionary quirk of being born early caused us to get smarter and smarter.
0: Yeah, so it'll be interesting. Is this such, uh, are we uh, just midway of a process, or is this uh, the next stage already? But that's for another uh, topic. But what I was going to get into is so once we're born, this the human brain. Uh, does not have a fully formed neocortex. Now, um, I think I mentioned that briefly earlier, but the neocortex is where you do your conscious thinking. Underneath the neocortex is what we call the limbic system. And the limbic system is basically where your emotions live. And so once babies are born, they are not entirely, but they are predominantly in the emotional state. And as Duncan pointed out, you then are quite, uh, frankly bombarded with stimuli from the moment you're first born. As soon as you're born, you open your eyes um, and you know you can't really see, but suddenly light comes in, air comes in, uh, the realization of discomfort, all of these things start happening to your brain and your brain starts uh, wiring itself and growing this neocortex. And this was super, super important for myself as a new parent to suddenly understand because it also then comes with the realisation of there are certain things that uh, parents can do to help encourage the development of a child. And there are also certain things that parents don't actually have to do. Um, one of the, uh, I guess, lessons that I've learnt is that you need to simply provide the safest and the most Uh, I guess, loving environment possible for a child when they're first born. And you don't have to worry about training them anything. They figure it out themselves. Uh, A really good example of this is that from the moment a child is first born, they instinctively know how to breastfeed. They look for the breast and they can latch on straight away. But as a parent, I think that it might actually be my job to teach them everything. But that's not actually the case. The brain actually has got a bunch of hard wired code inside its uh, uh I think it's Nebula that um has been there since oh. sorry, we have it. we have a we have a dog in the office to
1: Um cool. Um maybe I'll jump in while James is laughing. Um there's a lot of stuff which yeah. is hardwired in, but this doesn't mean that you can't affect things. Um So a study that I really quite liked is talking about how you can affect cognitive, um, you know, development of of a child. And one of the major ones they were able to do was just how many words does this infant have, you know, spoken to it? Um, And they sort of had, I think it was over the first um, three years, some infants having three million words and some infants having one and a half million, so kind of half. And because the brain is so plastic, if you're stimulating it properly and if you're reading, you know, Nietzsche or something to it, not so much stimulation, but something which you know a, a baby engages with, then it, it significantly affects cognitive development. And so, basically, the, the you know babies that had three million words had a much higher IQ than the ones that had one and a half million. And so, a, a sort of weird quirk of this is they say that eighty percent of your IQ is inherited, but then you can develop it as life goes on. And there were some people mm. who, for instance, had high IQs and then had you know been wealthy, and then they had. Outsourced a lot of the early child rearing to nannies and the nannies did a wonderful job of making sure that you had a clean nappy and were fed but they didn't speak to the children and so they actually had children that had significantly lower cognitive ability than what they should have had based on genetics so whilst you know maybe not how to latch on to a breast that doesn't necessarily mean that you're not going to be you're just literally a sort of thing making sure it gets fed or has a clean nappy you can do a lot more than that
0: Oh yes, not um yes, not to be mistaken, there are certainly things that you can help teach your child, such as uh some key social skills. Uh when <laughs> when they're old enough to be walking around on their own two feet, uh they're old enough to think that the the world is their oyster. So that's where you can start to uh I guess offer some key benefits of understanding that there are other people that exist as well that you have to be mindful of. Um but I guess that it's a really important thing to uh say here so what they're talking about here is education. And it's such a, it's such a widespread area because it's not just like a binary, yes, you should, no, you shouldn't provide education and learning, but it's how. Um, and one of the key areas that's not really talked about, at least in my circles, well enough, is the importance of things like play and how play for young children, not just, um, in uh, our species, but in most mammal species as well. Is not, it's quite, uh, I guess, important for them to have this to help stimulate and grow the brain as well. And they showed this through studies that they did with chimpanzees who were allowed to play with their friends versus those who did not. And through play, they actually developed those social skills as well.
1: Okay. So, you know, what is good play and what is sort of bad play? And this is sort of one of the things that I was sort of thinking about. So... I think a bit about education. You kind of want to have people in what they call the proximal zone of development. And so this is a really um, rough bastardization of this. (laughs) But if you're getting 100% of things right, you're not learning anything because you know it all, right? If you're getting 0% right, you're not learning anything because you're not getting any of it right. Um, However, what you want to be doing is getting some right and some wrong. And there's a lot of evidence to say that it's roughly 50%. So what you need to do to help you know, children develop is have them in the right environment to grow. And I use a very sort of weak case of just words, number of words. But basically, if they're playing with other children their age, they're at the kind of level they are. And you as an adults, you know, who might be whatever, 30 years older than your child, aren't necessarily able to level with your child. <laughs> um, so, play is not just, you know, good, you know, or, or about relaxing or whatever. Um, But it is actually how they are actually in that proximal zone of development, partially right, partially mm. wrong, and learning to communicate. They're learning about, like, you know, sharing and other toys. So play has a purpose, in other words.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things they talked about um, that play encourages is this thing called intellectual
1: curiosity.
0: Um, so this kind of plays into <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, what, what we touched on in a previous episode about um, learning to ask the right questions. If there is one thing that children are instinctively good at is asking a lot of questions. And it's something that, you, as a, especially as a parent, you can take for granted because they don't stop asking questions. <laughs> is that this is, um, you know, this is, this, this natural curiosity, uh, is so important to cultivate, uh, because what it does, it, put them in the habit of asking good questions, and it shows that they have this natural desire to want to know and to learn. Um, and so um, so Neil deGrasse Tyson, a prominent uh, uh, astrophysicist, put it very um, uh, elegantly when he was explaining to a room full of parents who were complaining about their children not wanting to do the sciences or not wanting to enroll in science subjects. And he talked about how um, he hears stories all the time about children wanting to, you know, pull all the pots and the pans out of the kitchen cupboard and bang on them and make noise. And you, as a parent, just want to restore order and say, "Stop making that racket." Uh, to which he said, "You just destroyed an experimentation in acoustics." Hmm. So the, our, our children, um, well, children, our program to want to experiment with everything in the world around them. But as part of that experiment is pushing boundaries or just finding where those boundaries are. The, the unfortunate thing is that the parent is usually at the edge of that boundary and so are their wits. <laughs> <laughs> so that's where it's become important for um, people to acknowledge this because if we don't, then we will simply try to contain it or suppress it. And that's how curiosity can be lost over time. If you're untaught, that having a curious mind is something that is, uh, I guess, uh, friction to other people, then you don't express it as much. But if your curiosity is fed, then it's self-perpetuating cycle. It's not this zero-sum game. It's just something that grows and grows and grows.
1: Yeah, um, there's a great quote from Einstein I like, which is, the important thing Mm. is not to stop questioning. Curiosity has its own reason for existing. and I, you know, remember, you know, that a lot of, you know, and I myself ask lots of questions um, and I think at some point parents might just get a little tired and they don't want to answer them. Um, but this can actually sort of stop people from, you know, wanting to ask and discourage them. And so, if you are wanting to hopefully develop your child's cognitive ability, keeping them asking, keeping them being curious and, you know, going on their journeys with them is huge. Um, and so, schools um, also have a lot of problems, uh, you know, with, with students that aren't necessarily asking and building that sort of curiosity. Um, so, I think it's incredibly important to foster that and to not push back, even though you, you may be tired, um, yeah. and to try to figure out how to do that. So, just like play is like at that proximal zone of development for, for a child, i.e. it's not too high or too low, I think there's also parallels just for us as adults, if you are trying to have an, a conversation with someone and they're a PhD in this area, you, you probably may not necessarily be able to level with them very well. Um, mm. So, you, you want to find someone that's at the right level of stretching for you. Um, you kind of do want to grow. Um, and so, I yeah. think thinking about fostering creativity but also thinking about how you do that which is sort of one level above where the child is. You don't want to have it be five levels, because that can then have a you know cognitive overload they talk about, which is where you get discouraged. Um, so you can mm. discourage from two ways. One is stop asking questions, I'm tired. Another one is try and do some nuclear you know physics and you're a three-year-old, so it's just way too hard. So it's kind of you <laughs> from a cultural or attitude perspective and you from a content perspective getting both right. Mm. And this is like a supremely fun problem to look at, I think.
0: Yeah. Um, and what I think all of that plays into is this bigger question of nature versus nurture. And um, where do we sit along this spectrum? So um, I guess for people listening, the, 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 the the concept of nature versus nurture is just how much of us is comprised of genetics or our genes and was basically programmed into us from the start that, you know, you are naturally smart. So there are things that are unequivocally nature how tall you are, the color of your hair, the color of your eyes.
1: Or do you want to hear something, um, then, a really quick side thing? It is, but you, know, oh, yes. you can actually, of course, if you have good nutrition, other things you know, affect how tall you are. So my favorite one is South Korea and North Korea. Um, North Korea not necessarily having the world's best nutrition. And in about 50 years, the South are now three to four inches taller on average than the North. And 50 years ago, before the war, they were the same. So, yes, while it's sort of in there, you know, just like you can foster eating healthy and exercising well, all that same stuff applies to your mind. Your mind isn't just this thing. If you don't feed your mind well, you're going to have bad outcomes. And a lot of people feed their mind junk food and then they expect good outcomes. But sorry, James, to interrupt.
0: Yeah. No, but that's exactly um, where we're getting to with the nurture side. And as we get – so, nurturing is how much of this can you cultivate? Um, uh, Another way of looking at it is through growth mindset, but basically it's it's not important where you are at a base level in terms of your cognitive abilities or your social skills. You can adapt or you can um, grow your capabilities through environmental conditioning, through repetition, through a whole host of different kinds of, um, I guess, practices. And so, as you just pointed out, Duncan, even things that in the past we considered to be wholly determined by nature um, also are influenceable by um, the environment um, during a a person's lifetime. So it's it's this spectrum that we have that we think to ourselves, um, perhaps unconsciously, if you don't actually give it much thought, you would probably think much of your makeup or who you are is determined by nature. But the more you think about it or the more we look into what it is that um, you know we're made up of as the sum of our experiences, it seems to move more towards the nurturing side. Um, so, Duncan, would you, um, where do you think it it's just along this spectrum or do you think it's something more of a moving needle throughout life?
1: Yeah, um, there's a lot of research on neuroplasticity. Um, so, look it up if you want. Mm. But basically, <laughs> what they think is that you can learn at any point in your life and that, that makes sense. Like... James and I are 34, but, you know, think of your parents or grandparents. Can they learn something new? Yes. Okay, so you can learn new things at any point in your life. What can be learned? Is it only facts? Like, you know, when, I don't know, someone-so was born or something? Or is it things like empathy? Is it things like feeling? Is it things like happiness? And what they believe is that everything is effectively a skill. So there's nothing which can't be learned or unlearned. It doesn't mean that you don't have innate traits and strengths and and relative weaknesses, but you can work on anything and everything. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, if you can, you probably should and you can sort of help. One sort of thing which I think is interesting, a lot more measurable, IQ tests, as an example. So, we've consistently been getting better at this. So, if you look at the average score in the 50s versus now, it's gotten better. Have we necessarily gotten smarter as a race? Like has the human, you know, species evolved or is this because we're getting better at education? Um, I know that there's a lot of people saying we're not necessarily getting better at education, but net net, IQ scores have been going up. <laughs> and so, this is just a sign that sort of everything can be adjusted and I think that's really, really, really cool. And so, there's a quote and maybe I'll to James, you know, culture happens by default or by design. And so, mm. I think that if you don't think about being proactive with yourself, then you will be sort of inculcated by society, um, and if you don't think of being productive about your child, it's going to, you know, learn or you know become what it is, whether you like it or not. So you may as well have a hand mm-hmm. in it. Is my two cents, James. You know, where do you yeah. come down on this?
0: Well, uh, I think it's important. Um, well, it's an interesting the point that you make about um, IQ tests and how we use this kind of as a barometer for measuring our, uh, I guess, our intelligence levels, is. The translation of IQ, um, over time, and how this can actually um, be something that we can gain as a as a culture, as a society. Um, so the reference I'm drawing on here is uh, in China at the moment that there, there is quite a they, they, they have a, they're having a big problem with their education system, and the, I guess the paradox is that they rank uh, particularly in Shanghai, they rank among the top in the world. In terms of student uh, aptitude tests uh, they're one of the the form the, one of the leaders in um, you know all of the different kinds of tests that the students must take on the standardized level but the problem is that the way that the education system has been set up is so that the students over there are compelled to learn the answer or to Rememorize the knowledge required to pass these tests. So what they're doing, they're essentially gaming the system and not nurturing their brains. Uh, and so what's happening is that these children are growing up and going out into the real world or into the workforce, and it's suddenly becoming apparent uh, in the economy that these, uh, these types of brains that have been nurtured to simply restore facts or to store knowledge can't cope in the real world. Um, so, I think that's an interesting uh, interplay between this being um, designed by your culture or by default and how it is that you design the way in which you develop or nurture a particular brand.
1: I thought I'd just jump in. Um, there is a critique that the you know Asian education systems are more based around rote learning. This does not mean that they are only rote learning, um, that there's less you know, emphasis on creativity and other things in their things. But that does not mean that they are necessarily failing. I mean, look at China and the growth that they're having. Look at the new companies that they're creating, you know, the amount of, you know, tech companies and other things. So, this isn't necessarily to say that that is in part of it. Um, but there's a very interesting book called Who's Afraid of the um, Dragon? And I might have got this right wrong, but that's big on the… Dragon. Big Bad Dragon. <laughs> which is on the, um, you know, Chinese education system. And it's talking about we'll some of the themes… The that James has sort of talked about there, and what really is the goal of education? And I thought I'd just touch on one thing. Someone's talked about this. So there's the International Baccalaureate, which is a uh, education, you know, um, curriculum, um, and they have schools all over the world. Um, and in their primary levels, they're specifically talking about trying to help students foster these, or you know, skills. I think you call them, but areas. So, so one would be enthusiasm, creativity cooperation, tolerance, curiosity, empathy, confidence, appreciation, commitment. And so these are soft skills, I suppose people would call them, as opposed to like mathematics, which might be a hard skill. And they have specifically woven these things into their curriculum and, again, do try to foster them. Um, and so I just want to make it clear. Like I used to think that this stuff, I don't know, at the school, you know, the school that we had was very traditional and the sort of explicit stuff was like, History, science, etc. Not for for one to say curiosity as an example or empathy, but it is, and there's a lot of evidence on this that you can cultivate these things and you can become more empathetic. You know, be kind to yourself and be kind to others. And so, this was just a huge breakthrough for me that this was possible. Um, and it's not just like I don't know, someone's born really good with you know being empathetic or something. It is definitely possible yeah. to cultivate.
0: Yeah. Uh, I I would um, be of the school of thought that empathy is certainly something that is primarily nurtured. Um, I think I can see a lot of examples of where uh, children can be encouraged to think um, not just for themselves but how their uh, actions affect others. And that, that learning in a social setting, that experimentation of doing things, getting them wrong, and then having someone guide them through that process um, I think is incredibly valuable. Um, and I don't, I don't know if I want to go off on too much of a tangent here, but it's also quite concerning when we're looking at the, um, the effect that, uh, you know, screens are having on young children. And I know I'm, I'm not going to get it right, but, um, they have already done studies on this that shows that children who are exposed to too much screen time earlier on, Uh, don't learn the key or the key social or cognitive skills required for social behavior. Uh, and that, that is why the World Health Organization has also come out and said that you shouldn't look at screens for the first two years. But that's something that you need to be able to manage because we're in a, a, a very technological world now. So it's not like this is something that you should just deprive a child of or just remove entirely. It's something where you need to find an optimal balance.
1: Yeah, I think, um, be careful here because there's always the sort of sampling bias of any study. So, food done bad is bad, food mm. done good mm. is good, books done badly are bad, books done well you know, are good, exercise done bad is bad, exercise done good is good. Just blanket saying that screens are bad isn't necessarily right, I think... Where these studies came from is that in this, the students might have stopped from being, I don't know, play, which is where it's like if they're playing with other children, they are interactive game. Do you know what I mean? They have to see what's happening. They have to learn communication, other skills. Whereas just plonking an iPad in front of them that plays a video might be quite you know, passive if that makes sense. But if it was a, you know, interactive game, and there's a number of them out there that have been shown to be really good So, some of them might be like, what animal is this? And it's like an elephant or whatever else it is. And then, you know, what noise does an elephant make? And they pick. And so, they're actually, again, putting them in that proximal zone of development. So, screens aren't necessarily bad. Bad screens are bad. Um, And so, getting this right, I think, is is really important. Um, And so, parenting, you know, I think it's funny that you need to get a license to drive a car. (laughs) But it's very clear that the, the evidence shows the first thousand days makes a massive impact on different people's lives from empathy skills, you know, emotional intelligence, IQ. But most people are just winging it and they haven't necessarily read a lot of research into what can happen and how you can actually help with these different things.
0: Yeah, I, I completely agree. Like, um, And, you know, this is where people come and say, but there's moderation in all things. Um, it, it's similar to what you're saying, like, Things themselves are not bad. Technology is not bad. Um, you know, screen time is not bad. It's just whether they're done properly or not and whether they're, um, you know, overexposed or underexposed, whether they're eating the right food or too much of the um, the right or wrong food. Um, but, so that, that point to me is certainly um, relevant. Um, I, I would counter at least to say that that's true of all things. And so what we... Tr- Need to try and explore it, where does that balance sit, or where does that optimal um, level sit between, you know, things like how can we, you know, create a very, very social environment or a, an environment that nurtures that part of the child's brain. Um, cool. And oh, I think one of the, I think one of the things that uh, really, really helps with this is looking at it from Maslow's hierarchy of needs point of view. Mm-hmm. Uh, so now, Duncan, I know this is something that's very, very near and dear to your heart. So I thought maybe you would like to walk us through the, the actual hierarchy first before we can try and see how that can apply.
1: Sure. Um, if you haven't looked at Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs, and we'll put a link in the um, in the description, I love this framework. <laughs> there's, there's a few different versions of it, um, but we'll talk about a couple. There's what they call basic needs, then psychological needs, And so, the basic needs need to be filled because if you can't do them, then you can't do the psychological needs. And then on top of the psychological needs are the self-fulfillment needs. So, inside the basic needs, there's things like food, water, warmth, rest. Then there's the safety needs, which is security and safety. And a lot of early childhood people that, you know, doing this. Then there's the psychological needs. So, this would be belonging and love needs. See intimate relationship, friends. Self esteem, um, prestige, a feeling of accomplishment. And then the self fulfilling ones, it's becoming the best version of oneself. They call this self actualization. And transcendence is helping others become, you know, move up the hierarchy. And so, what I would say is that as a good parent, you would be trying to help a child with all of these different levels. So, again, you can't work on the higher level ones. So, the basic needs come before the psychological needs, before the self fulfillment. So, first up, if, you know, child isn't being fed, not good. (laughs) If child isn't, you know, warm, not good. But then, you know, you need to hopefully be a good friend and and supportive, you know, have a nice relationship with the child. If you're mean to the child or whatever else, that's not going to be great. And so, these are supremely important. And I think you want to literally be looking across all of these things. The goal isn't necessarily to, there isn't a right answer. You know, what should, you know, is potential for one person is different to the other. What they should be doing is different. What mm. their innate interests are are different. But you can foster this. And I don't think many people do much beyond the sort of basic and psychological needs. And I think that you definitely can help with this. Mm. 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 Uh, I, I think it's, cer- it's certainly true that um, as a
0: default, and this is something that I can see myself. Uh, you know, kind of like easing back into all the time. But as a parent, it's kind of just focused on the psychological and the safety needs. And that's all I have time and energy for. Uh, because uh, at the same time, while the child is developing, they're pushing the boundaries on your own psychological needs as well. Uh, but that's when they're showing that they need your support and their psychological needs the most. So, um one person uh, explained it to me quite eloquently uh, those who ask for love often do it in the most unloving of ways and so does that mean, this that mean? Is never so uh, it's never better exemplified than when you're dealing with an overtired toddler <laughs> <laughs> so, so um, and when you when you realize that this is the state they're in, then you can manage it a lot more easily because you're I guess, more prepared for it. But basically, when you are three years old and you are tired, you're not like a 34-year-old who was tired that's just slow and tired and maybe a bit grumpy and just wants to lie down. You're the opposite. You're incredibly hyper. You're incredibly emotional and you're incredibly, uh, I guess, um, reactive to any kind of changes in the environment. And this is often expressed through outbursts of emotion. And so it's very, very, it's a very, very important time um, to understand that this is a psychological um, need for a child to want to feel like that they are still cared for. And they will do it in a way that if, if um, the analogy is when you try and save someone who's drowning, that person will um, instinctively try and jump on top of your head to you know stay above water. <laughs> it's the same thing here. The person is psychologically drowning and you're not there to punch them out so that they stop failing. You're there to reassure them that it's okay. Does that make sense?
1: Kind of. Um, I think part of what you're saying is like doing the esteem needs well is hard, <laughs> uh, and <clears> sometimes <throat> you can be counterproductive. You know, you yeah. have good intentions, but you don't necessarily have good outcomes. One of the things yeah. I think you know, as you know, James and I um, we are hopefully here to help each other with our self-esteem needs, and. One of the key things that's come recently is what's called growth mindset which sort of sits in the esteem um, side of things and there's a lot of... um, So, this is by Carol Dweck. Again, we'll put a link to this in the show notes. Um, And there's a lot of sort of work about how do we help put this with with people and, and trainers at school. So, I'm just going to read to you quickly what the definition of this is. Individuals who believe that their talents can be developed e.g. through hard work, good strategies, input from others, have a growth mindset. They tend to achieve more than those with a more fixed mindset, those who believe that their talents are an innate gift. This is because they worry less about looking smart and put more energy into learning. So as we've sort of been saying from the beginning, you're not born with fixed IQ. You're not born with fixed empathy. You're not born with this. You can cultivate almost anything. And people that believe they can then work on it. Like when I, you know, didn't do well on this test, it's not because I'm bad at, you know, maths or whatever. It's because I need to cultivate my math skills. Now, again, maths may be not your strength, but you can get better at it. And I think this is one of the core things to self-esteem. And people without self-esteem on sort of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but also other places, have a lot of problems in life. Just think about it. If you're not confident, you know, you might have anxiety and depression and a whole lot of other things. And so, this is something that schools spend a lot of time actually thinking about now. How do you do growth mindset in this? And parents, uh, you know, there's a lot of literature around as well and also in the workplace. Um, And so, I think that helping, you can help someone have self-esteem. And so, part of this, if you're talking to a child, you know, you did not do well here because you're not smart. You did not do well because maybe you didn't do any study for it. And maybe if you try a bit harder, you can do this. And Mm. I suppose one example where people sort of think this is obvious is like sport. Hey, if you're going to, you know, want to play football and you have done no training outside, you're not going to be as good as someone who does lots of training. So you can develop your sport skills. You can get better at, you know, kicking the ball. But for some reason, Mm. people don't seem to translate that as much into maths or, you know, English or whatever else it is or empathy. You can practice your skills in many places.
0: Well, um, it's actually an interesting um, analogy you give there because it was, um, and I will try and find it can put it in the show notes. Um, it, it was observed by uh, someone not long ago about how we as uh, a general um, population like to default to referring to elite athletes as gifted. Um, and this is something That's that we do. That's a fixed mindset um, way of things, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, And um, exactly to that point. And the reason um, this person observed it was not because we believe that to be true, but deep down psychologically by acknowledging that they're not actually entirely gifted, but that they actually worked hard and they trained and they applied themselves and they um, did rigorous exercise through um, grit and determination. That implicitly admits to themselves that it's possible for them to do it too. But they're not at that level. So it's a lot easier for the brain to say, well, if it's not possible for me to do it, then I can then exalt them as otherwise gifted. So it's, yeah, so to your point, Duncan, like there's this, there's this very powerful mindset of if you believe that you can apply yourself to You know, improve in a particular area based on how much application or how much uh, input you produce, then you will be far more enthused and encouraged to want to apply it, to want to uh, work hard, to want to, you
1: know, um, know, to have things like grit. Mm -hmm. Um, One of these sort of areas of being able to cultivate things. So, one of the people I work with um, used to be a primary school teacher and specifically a what in Victoria is called prep, but it's like the year before year one. So, it's the first year of sort of school. Um, and what there is a study, say in mathematics, in year seven, they say there's a spread of eight or ten years of different ability. So, in the average year seven class, some students will be year 11 level and some students will be year two level. And I remember thinking... Okay, so they come into prep, which is the first year in Victoria, Australia, they must all be starting at the same place and then somehow between there and year seven, there's a 10-year spread that that comes off and I asked if this was true and he said, no, completely not and he said, there's already a massive spread coming in. Um, So, I loved Lego as a child, like I'm not talking about a little bit, like I had like a major Lego obsession. I would get up before school and I would just go Lego, you know, turbo and mum would come in and I'd be like not wanting to leave and she'd be like, you have to put your Lego down. She'd lift me off the ground and I'd still be making Lego. And Lego in some respects (laughs) is like junior maths or whatever. It's like learning how to put things together, you know, it's science, maths kind of stuff. And so, I already had a massive, you know, I'd spent, I don't know, I'd done a thousand hours of Lego by the time I got to school. And some students start reading a lot earlier. And so they will have had people reading to them and then they'll start reading. And they'll have read 30 books. And this is the wonderful analogy. He said, I would have students in prep, some of whom could read entire novels, like a novel only done for year seven, and others who are holding the book upside down. They'd never read a single thing. And so even from that very early age, people had been cultivating different things. And then what happens is this compounding effect So, they say, what you can learn is a function of what you know. So, if James loves sport and I don't love sport, and we read an article on sport, same article takes half an hour to read, say, James will get five facts and I'll get three facts. But each fact will mean more to James because he can link them onto other facts. So, in the same period of time, he's got five and I've got three and each fact is more valuable. So, he gets more learning per unit of time. So, basically, you compound. The more you've already put into reading or the more you've already put into engineering and Lego, then it compounds. And every hour you spend after that, the other people don't catch up. But, you know, the people who are already strong at that get further and further away. And so, kind of what happens is from a very early age, you start to develop skills and then you get better and better at them. And so, what you want to do, we were talking about this earlier, is cultivate curiosity and cultivate curiosity across a broad spectrum. Not going into specializing as a one-year-old or a two-year-old. And then hopefully, you know, bigger (laughs) polymath, lots of different things. And then it compounds. And then you don't have this because people get discouraged. They come and they see someone else doing better on a test or whatever. And they think, oh, I'm not smart. So, you need to cultivate the growth mindset side of things. I can get better. Mm. And you need to start people off being curious and foster that curiosity in a way which is good you know, not just intellectually, i.e., not too hard, other things. and then if you do this, you, you have, you know, people that have gotten significantly more skills in a massive number of areas.
0: Mm. I, and I think that's one way that people can often get easily discouraged by looking to the person next to them and seeing how advanced they are. So, mm. uh, for example, if if I was in prep looking at my, um, you know, my 10 my brick high tower of Lego and then looking at uh Duncan's, you know, uh Sangrada Familia next to me, <laughs> I might feel a little bit discouraged by the, um by way of the fact that I am not at the same level as tears But um appreciating that, you know, I've only just started playing with LEGO, whereas Duncan has had um, you know, multiple weeks of thirty hour um <laughs> playtime.
1: I had a full time Lego job. job. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't playing. I was like, full-time Lego. I was probably doing 30 or 40 hours of Lego a week before school. Like, before I just... Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Keep going.
0: Yeah. I'm probably sure there was a couple of show-and-tells where you got to bring them in as well. And it it just... It would have been very interesting. But the point I was making is that you need to track your own progress and not against those around you. Because you don't know what... How much they've already... Been exposed to that particular area, um, and I think this is where sometimes schools do, um, you know, I guess don't optimize in terms of helping individuals along their own personal trajectory. Some students are naturally um, aligned with English and can, you know, spend a lot uh, less time on that, whereas other students may need to spend more time on, you know, things like mathematics, um, and so. Getting back to the gross mindset, it's just looking at your own progress, looking at what you are today and compare it to how you were yesterday. And I think that's something that can be cultivated through your environment, through your parents, through your, um, I guess, your wider society. That if you, um, you know, while competition is very important, but if you primarily were in competition with yourself or your previous self, I think that can actually lead to a very healthy development
1: mentality. Mm. Um, I think we sort of talked about this a little bit, Um, but this is sort of key for when you're older as well. Find things you're interested in (laughs) and then, Mm. you know, spend time Mm. with them. And this is one of the things that I found. The more you know about something, the more interesting it is. So as an example, my family did not like politics um, growing up. In fact, like my dad's, Worst topic of conversation would ever be to talk about politics, <laughs> uh, you know, it is not interested. And I just thought it was this super boring, you know, I didn't really understand how it was tangible to me, um, you know, I wasn't, no one was talking about policy for education or anything in my household. And then I slowly have been sort of learning about it as an adult. And each kind of thing I learn more it becomes more and more interesting. And now it's, like, super fascinating. Um, and so I've gone from, like, this This is the most boring thing ever. Why the hell are we talking about it? And I think this is a sort of a similar thing that you want to do is hopefully help children, and this is other, other people, find the sort of beginning point where it's interesting um, and where they are engaged. And then there's other mm. thing which we haven't really talked about, which is called, oh, this is the same idea of proximal zone of development, which is flow from Csikszentmihalyi. And... We'll put this in there as well. But basically, you want to balance the level of skills someone has versus the challenge that they have. Too much skills, not enough challenge, it's boring. Too much challenge, not enough skills, it's anxiety. So, there's this nice balance which they call flow of challenge and skills. Mm. And you also want to have interesting. So, you can have the same concept. You can have a nice, interesting uptake to it. And then learning happens naturally. And then self-growth and all these other things happen. And so, I think this is what... You know, I'm, I don't have children, but I did buy a book for James um, for little Izzy. <laughs> and um, so, there's a thing called ASA, which is the Australian Centre for Education Research. And they wrote a book called The Doll Hospital, which was meant for three-year-olds. And there's a, a bit you read together with the three-year-olds. And then there's all these activities, um, which you do. And it's basically weaving in philosophy into a story. So, it's meant to be tasty, i.e., you know, interesting and healthy. Um at the same time and actually what I've found is that stuff that's interesting and tasty is actually the best, Um, so I don't know, junk food might be reality TV, although I don't think it's actually something interesting in reality TV because you get to observe other humans and learning about other humans is so much fun Um, and so I think that basically what you want to do is get them interested in reading something and find something that they like reading, get them interested in some some Lego but the right challenge and then (laughs) From Lego, you might graduate on to like, I don't know. Lego now has digital stuff which you can do and you can program little things to do other things. Um, But this is kind of life. Like you can, no, you know, most people choose uh, distraction and entertainment over learning and growth because learning and growth, Uh they associate with school as being boring and hard. But what I've found is that learning and growth can actually be way better than distraction and entertainment. Well, it actually is entertaining, but it's entertaining Uh and learning and growing. So it's all three.
0: I, I wholeheartedly agree that um finding things that stirs um young people's passion I think is um one of the best ways to cultivate a gross mindset or um grit. Uh and so I think there's another um book we can put in our links, uh, which is the book called Grit. And basically what it talks about is um, correct me if I'm wrong here, Duncan, but it's built on the um, on the premise of growth mindset but it goes a step further and it talks about what it, uh, people who have grit basically show that they have a combination of passion and perseverance and the perseverance comes from learning um, through earlier stages of where they've had their interests uh, nurtured that by persevering they're able to get more enjoyment out of it. Like, um, I guess the more you know, the more things become interesting. And so I really, so this, this is actually said for me, one of my key goals for my children is not for them to get top marks or for them to be, um, you know, the best in any particular field, but my goal is to try and cultivate a sense of loving for learning that they just Whatever it is that they are interested in, that they, they would find immense enjoyment out of learning more about that which spurs their interest. So I think this idea of, um, you know, finding a passion, finding whatever it is, or just moving towards your interest, um, to be an incredibly, um, helpful approach in developing your, um, people's mind.
1: Wonderful. Um, I gotta jump off, so maybe it's summary time. Um, so, what is the summary? Okay, neuroplasticity happens your entire life, but is most important when you're younger. You can learn things at any point, and everything is a skill. Um, so, nothing is fixed. You can grow your empathy. You can grow your compassion. You can grow your. You can work on happiness. They say happiness can be learned. There's a lot of research around that. Um, but you want to have application to do these things. You know, it's not just going to happen by itself. And the easiest way to do that is to have stuff that's interesting. <laughs> um, so, don't fight yourself into doing something boring. Find the sort of interesting ways in. Um, I've personally, they say that one of the top three things that lives with happiness is personal growth. Um, and for me, this is learning about myself, learning about the world. and yeah. hopefully becoming better at it. Um, so, the same principles that apply to an infant, which is that you want to have something which is the right level of challenge for them and you want to have something that's interesting and you kind of want to be not necessarily too lopsided, like you only do it in one field. Uh, I don't know, yeah. reading reading about you know fiction um, and no Lego as an example. You want to have you a bit yeah. rounded. Um, so um, they say the future belongs to polymaths. Um, so yeah, um, the same thing applies to how I think about growing myself. I hope to continue growing. It's not just like now I've you know working I have finish unit and no more learning occurs. No, I think I've actually only recently figured, like maybe in the last five or ten years, how to teach myself. So, I actually started really learning when I stopped formal education. (laughs) Um, I was was being taught at that point and I I was like against my will. Um, This is boring and I had a really poor conception of learning, but now learning is like, and I wanted to just go and, you know, play computer games and, you know, have drinks with James. But now, like learning is fun. Like on my ideal Sunday, I just sit around reading Mm -hmm. fun books, writing some little blogs, learning things, you know, entertaining. It's beautiful. Alright. Yeah.
0: I, I, I think that that's where we can start and end this, is that, um, you know, education is not learning. It is one part of your learning journey. Um, to me, what I really, um, you know, what I've learned or taken away from this is that, um, when it comes to development or when it comes to nurturing a gross mindset, you know, things of their own, um, volition are not inherently bad. It's just whether you can, um, you know, apply them correctly or to completely plagiarize Duncan, it's about doing the right thing and doing things right. (laughs) So I think doing the right thing to me is instilling a sense of love for learning. And I think the right way to do that is to find and follow their interests. Find what it is that will make them want to learn more because the more they learn, the more fun or the more interesting um, it can be. And if suddenly it becomes no longer interesting, allow them to naturally move on. Uh, I, think, um, I think we need to look at this um, you know, from a natural point of view. I have never truly appreciated how important it is um, from a parent, from a culture, from um, a wider network around, you know, from your very early ages, um, you know, how much of an impact something like the first 1,000 days or first seven years can have on your life. But it's still true, as Duncan points out, that even in your 20s and 30s, you can come to a realization that, um, hold on, if I you know, focus on what I'm interested in, I can still love learning. I can still change. I can still learn um, soft skills like empathy and um, feeling when I'm uh, hopefully in my golden years. So I think this is a, 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 it's really interesting to look at from um, how you can set these up from a very young age but that's not the end of the story. I think this is something that plays out throughout your entire life. Um, I'm very excited to see how this all evolved with my two children. But at the same time, um, I'm also excited to be on my own journey and to see where that takes me as well.
1: Yeah, the journey continues. And people should think about actively doing the journey. journey. So just, you know, yeah. final point, like, you know, Raising a child is not just the bottom parts of Maso's hierarchy of need; just those basic things like making sure that they're mm. fed and warm, and you know, other things. It's helping begin this for them, and the sooner you do, the better for them. They will enjoy it. They'll have a better life, you know. And, and this is not so when they look at these things like how happy are people, how much mental health problems do they have, and all this other stuff. So, what's good for you and the way you approach life now has its beginnings for an infant. All right, let's leave it there. Um, speak to you soon, James.
0: See you later.
1: Right.